You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by all of the amazing supporters on Patreon. And I would encourage you, if you've gotten something out of this podcast over the last few years, if you wouldn't mind supporting us, go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can get lots of extra resources. But it's really about helping people get the best in biblical scholarship uh, through the the airwaves, so to speak, uh, here on the podcast. So again, go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. We could really use your support. But today on the podcast, we have scholar, professor of Jewish studies at the University of Georgia, Richard Elliott Friedman, and we're talking about who wrote the Bible. So, he wrote a, a book back 30 years ago with that title, Who Wrote the Bible, has been trying to popularize the best in biblical scholarship every day since then. So, he's definitely a kindred spirit in our mission here at the Bible for Normal People. We talk about things like source criticism, different sources, where the Bible came from, a lot of things that we've touched on in different episodes, but we really zero in and focus on it here uh, with Richard Elliott Freeman. So, enjoy the episode. So, when he has the, the Levites stand up in Jerusalem, I could picture this in 450 BC, and they read all this text and they say, and this is the, the, the Torah of Moses. I don't picture some guy in the last row saying, oh no. You, 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 you put that together yourself. That's 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 too different. One of those was by my great grandfather, and the other one was by <laughs> my friend's great grandfather. You don't dare open your mouth and say that. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. Well, Richard, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I, I, I'm touched that you allowed me on a show that's supposed to be just for normal people. Yes. And you're not, are you? Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> well, just so people don't get the wrong idea by, you know, we're all abnormal people here in this conversation because we have background, we've gone to school, and maybe, you know, you teach and you have a lifetime of scholarship. A normal person is people who are interested in this, but don't really, uh, they don't have that kind of background. And sometimes abnormal people spend all their time talking to each other when it's probably a good idea to talk to other people too. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do here. So anyway. So, okay, listen, let's talk about the Pentateuch. You've heard of the Pentateuch, right? Yes. I think you've even written a couple of books on the Pentateuch, which is wonderful. We'll get to those later. But um, the Pentateuch, Torah, also as it's called, um, let's talk about, like, who wrote it. And that is not uh, an obvious question to answer, because traditionally, as you know, uh, authorship is ascribed to Moses in some sense. 
where does that idea come from? Let's even start with that. Like, why would somebody even say something like that? I've never been sure where the where it started. I suspect that it's because at the end of Deuteronomy, it says Moses in Deuteronomy thirty one. It says Moses wrote all the words of this Torah on a scroll and he gave it to the Levites. And since it's at the end of the five books of Moses, people I think naturally assumed it was talking about the whole five books of Moses that had been put together by then. But that sentence had been written at the end of Deuteronomy before the whole rest of the five books of Moses. Right, exactly. So nobody meant wrong by it. They were just reading the text and they saw what it said. And yeah. Either that or it's because in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it says they read the, the, this Torah of Moses. So one way or the other. Right. So there's got to be some biblical hook in there somewhere. But and in, in, in the New Testament, you know, Christians will appeal to uh, John chapter 5, where uh, Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. Um, and, and I think some of those things come together to sort of give uh, a, a sense of the antiquity of the idea that Moses is in some sense responsible for the Pentateuch. But the, I guess the reality of the matter is a lot more complicated once you start taking the text apart. So, so who would you say, just in a nutshell, let's just get down to it here. Who do you think wrote the Pentateuch? Um, given that it's between 20 and 25 hands at least in there. Yeah. You want me to go alphabetically and he No, that's okay, but t- just talk about the fact that there are the different there are different hands responsible for this Pentateuch. because the text sort of evolved or, or developed over time, I guess. I mean, is it just just that's even a big reorienting kind of concept for a lot of people that there are a lot of different people responsible for it. Well, well, hold on. Before we get there, because I hold think Hold on, we just I, started. I, I think- I think we jumped over something Uh-oh. that I think would be helpful for people to, because I can imagine people saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus, you know, we have this in the New Testament, we have Ezra and Nehemiah mentioning, so why are we discounting the idea that Moses could have written this? And I, I think most scholars would pretty much dismiss that out of hand because of some pretty uh, kind of glaring evidence that we have in the Pentateuch itself. I thought maybe, let's just take a minute and at least address that before we get into the really complicated stuff. So, between the two of you, I'm sure you can come up with these reasons real easily why it's it's probably not Moses who wrote the Pentateuch, as as maybe some people who, who don't understand documentary hypothesis or don't understand sources and, and redactors yeah. may have just grown up thinking. You know, okay, let's get just one or two reasons maybe, Richard, why there's no way Moses could have done this, and then maybe we can get into, like, well, who right. did? Well, okay, um... Anyone who knows Hebrew, first of all, learns it well, not just the way like a Jewish kid learns for his bar mitzvah but or her bat mitzvah, but rather, you know, seriously knows biblical Hebrew, can look at the text and see that it's not the same all over. Uh, the, the oldest thing in the Bible is the Song of the Sea, also known as Song of Miriam, Exodus 15. And you don't have to be a Hebrew genius to read it to, and see there, there are words there that they never taught you in class. They're, they're, they're old Hebrew, and it is as different from the Hebrew of the latest parts of the Torah, which would be some introductory parts of Deuteronomy that are already written, say, 6th century BCE, whereas the Song of the Sea is something like 12th century BCE. I mean, it's really close to the event, whatever the event was. It's like 12th century BCE. So you're looking at the oldest sentence in the Torah, and the youngest sentence in the Torah, and they were written 600 years apart. They are 
easily as different from each other as Shakespeare's English and the English that we're all sitting here talking right now. So if you think that any one person wrote it, let alone Moses, who lived before all of that, the burden of proof would be on those mm -hmm. who want to do that, not on yeah. the people who say, no, I don't think it was Moses, I think it was some other guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So linguistically, it, ju it just it, it doesn't really lend support to one person writing this, let alone one person living, let's say, maybe in the 13th or 14th century BCE, because the Hebrew is later, and it comes to us from varying time periods. Yeah. Look, there yeah. is no Hebrew in the 13th or 14th century BCE, when Moses would have been living. Yeah. And I think there was a Moses, so I'm not even arguing that. He's living. But, but um, the earliest inscriptions we have in biblical Hebrew, right, our, our 12th and 11th century, especially 11th and then 10th century BCE, are the earliest ones we have. We have no evidence that anybody spoke the Hebrew language before that, and certainly nobody wrote the Hebrew language before that. Yeah. So what am I going to do? And this isn't like, are, like originally people used arguments, well, Moses wouldn't have written this because he wouldn't have said that. They used arguments like that, like, like it says Moses was the humblest man on earth. He said, well, Moses, if he was the humblest man on earth, he wouldn't have wrote, ha ha, he was the humblest man on earth. And they used arguments like that, which are okay, you know, but that doesn't, that's not going to convince anybody. That's not proof. But, but this linguistic stuff, which is fairly recent, this is like math. I mean, this is serious, real evidence. It's serious any artifact you dig up on an excavation. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, not to press that point too much, because I don't want to dwell on this, but um, what about for people who can't read Hebrew, which is, from what I understand, most people, right? They, they, they don't read Hebrew. Um, is there another line of argument that, or, or evidence, not, not argument, just evidence that you can um, sort of share with our listeners about why it's really, really hard to conclude that one person wrote this, or and, and certainly one person living as long ago as Moses would have lived? Well, yes, it's a lot of overlapping evidence. What makes it effective is not just any one argument, which you can always disagree with, but but uh, the way all different kinds of evidence all point in the same way, that's in any field of science or history. I think what, per what persuades people is when there's a lot of different reasons that are all independent of each other, but they all point in the same place. Yeah. So, for example, uh, people point out the fact that there are whole sections of the Bible that refer to God only as God, Elohim in Hebrew. Done. But there are other sections of the Bible that only refer to God by his name, Yahweh, or in the English translation, it always says Lord, all in capital letters, whenever it's Yahweh in the Hebrew, right? So, now you might say, but that doesn't prove anything, because you could just say, you know, the Queen, and in another chapter, right, Elizabeth II, you, I'm using different names, that doesn't prove anything in itself, but you see whole sections that do that. But then there's this other kind of evidence people have noticed, you know, all, for 2,000 years, that there are these double stories, in, in, in the Pentateuch and the Torah, the, the, we call them doublets, you know, there's even a couple of triplets where uh, in Exodus 17, the people are in the wilderness after leaving Egypt and there's no water to drink and they're complaining to Moses. It's at a place called Meribah and Moses strikes this crag of a mountain. It's actually Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and he strikes it with that and water flows out and the people get the water. Very good. There's a few other details I'm leaving out, but you know, like, like the God is standing on the rock at the time. But then in, in Numbers 20, it's years later, and the people are at a place which oddly is called Meribah. And oddly, there's no water there. And oddly, uh, God tells Moses to hit a rock with a stick, and he hits the rock with a stick. And there's some more details that are different. 
and the water comes out. Now, if there's one or two stories like that in the Bible that, that recur, that's okay. Lots of authors do that where you recur on a theme. But, but there, there's, I counted once, I don't know, 30 to 40 of these through the course of the five books of Moses. And the interesting thing is if you take out a legal pad and draw a line up the middle and you write all one whole set of these double stories here and you write another uh, the other side of these double stories here, these all refer to God as God, Elohim, and these all refer to God as Yahweh. So you've got two completely different kinds of evidence, but they're lining up. Mm -hmm. And then you do that other stuff where you're talking about dating texts by the age of the Hebrew in them, and that lines up too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when, I mean, you just decide, when is it enough evidence? You go, okay, I get it. <laughs> I give up. Right. So, so going back to then... Uh, all of the evidence for what what is the case, not not what isn't the case. Um, what what does that evidence point to in terms of who wrote the Pentateuch? Or or maybe a better question is is how was it written? I don't you know I don't know if who wrote it is actually even a good question. Well, call it who or how, but it's that that uh, the writing of the text reflects the real history of ancient Israel and biblical times. So uh, there were different. There were two major different priesthoods in ancient Israel. So we, have, we actually have two different texts within the Torah that we can trace to each of those two priesthoods. Uh, one were the ones who traced themselves as descendants of Moses. So they're called the Mushite priesthood. We used to say mosaic, but everybody thought we meant little pebble pictures. So we yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and the others are, are called the Aaronid priesthood, who traced their descent from Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. And you can see the different stories reflect the interests of those two priesthoods. Or we know that part of it, uh, ancient Israel time, Judah in the south and Israel in the north were two separate countries. And then there were other times when Israel, Judah and Israel, like under King David and under King Solomon, were just united as one big empire. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so from the time when they were two separate countries, you can see texts in the Bible that clearly reflect the southern kingdom of jo Judah, they never mention anything in the north happening. All the stories take place in Judah. And the other texts are all about the north and reflect the religion and concerns of uh, Israel in the north. So whether it's a, a political difference or a religious difference between priesthoods, linguistic difference, uh, there, there's enough different kinds of things that that, that it shows the 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 Bible really coming out of the reality of, of ancient Israel, the real, real. And that, and that convergence of, of evidence guards against a very common response to all this, that, well, this is just circular reasoning. I, yeah, I think you're right. If it were, if it were just uh, one or just two or three, then you could say, oh, I get what you're doing. Whenever you see one, the name of God this way, you're claiming it's that. Whenever you see the name of God that way, you're claiming it's that. If, but if that lines up with these different doublets, and it lines up with the different stages of biblical Hebrew, and it lines up with the Judah-Israel division, and it lines up with the Mushite Aaronid priest division, I'm sorry, no scholar in the world is that I'm, I'm willing to admit I'm not good enough that I could possibly have rigged that much evidence to come out right. like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you mentioned the Song of Miriam, the, or the Song at the Sea, it's sometimes called too, and, and Exodus 15 as a very early text, and there are a few others, but what, what would you say is the end point of 
of the Pentateuch? What what are the latest texts or maybe maybe that's the wrong question to ask. Maybe what what's the latest evidence of maybe editors compiling all this and putting it together? In your opinion, I guess I guess points of view may differ on that, but how how young is the Pentateuch? We know sort of now how old some of its writings are, but when when did it all come together? Well, I mean, I mentioned uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? I, I take them as historical. They're about 450 BC or so, we can argue, but that's the general area. And it's when the Jews... Uh, are coming back from Babylon and Egypt where they've been either refugees or exiles and they're rebuilding under the Persian Empire. And it says Ezra has the the Levite priests stand up at this place called the Watergate. And I will try desperately not to make any jokes. I I think it's been too long. Nobody gets them anymore anyway. So uh, Dan Rather is the last one who gets the Watergate joke, you know. (laughs) But they stand up at this place called the Watergate and it says they read this Torah that Ezra had brought along with him. And Ezra, it says, was a priest and was a scribe, and he was an Aaronid priest, which is the, the, the kind of stuff that's favored by whoever put the Torah together. So he seems like the right guy in the right place at the right time. If it wasn't Ezra who finally put it all together, like the last editor, then it was like, you know, a guy who lived next door to Ezra and looked like him and wrote like him. I mean, I, you know, it's like, you know, Shakespeare wasn't by Shakespeare, it was by another guy named Shakespeare. I mean, it's that kind of thing. And, and, um, when you look at the text in Nehemiah, where it, 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 it summarizes the texts that they read there, it includes almost all these different sections and different authors that the whole, the- everybody's different theories have, have about Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is what I'm saying is, it seems to me pretty clear that the Torah that they read that day is the same one we have now. And if some very, very late editors got their hands on it afterwards, which I doubt, but it's possible, I'd grant it's possible then there might be a couple of changes. But I think basically they read what we read for the Mm -hmm. first five books of the Bible. For the rest, it gets a little more complicated. Do you have a sense of why it was brought together? Well... Like, why have a Pentateuch? Why have a Torah? Yeah. We know that that this was done in the ancient Near East, that people would take, when there were varieties of stories that fit together on a common subject, that they would put them together. Like the Gilgamesh epic wasn't written by Mr. Gilgamesh. I mean, it wasn't one person. It was, it was many authors and their works were combined. Uh, same thing. And uh, uh, people know that uh, in the New Testament, you know, there's the, the Diatessaron where, where uh, someone took the, the four gospels and just put them all together and created them like one super gospel. So whenever they're word for word the same, he leaves it. And whenever they're different, he puts it all in. And I just think that was an inclination of people in the ancient world. It was a good way to preserve texts. It was a way of showing respect to all of them. I mean, we do it today all the time. We write books that, that are, you know, in our field that are collections by different scholars. Sometimes some of the scholars in it aren't even alive anymore. And you put them all together. The difference is our standard in American and European and Israeli scholarship today is you're supposed to have a, a table of contents and you tell who wrote each chapter. And so, because we all want our credits and all that. But then apparently in ancient times, they didn't do that. They would put them all together and they're all together. So when you look at them all together, they go and not know about the whole process. You go, oh, it must have been one guy. Uh, okay, Moses. Mm. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary. 
where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, not to get us too far afield in terms of, of some of the theological maybe points of this or maybe even political points of this, but it strikes me that the, it raises the question for me of authority, right? So, in, in my religious context growing up, it, it, it gets its authority. This text gets its authority because it's this monolithic, unified thing that God dropped down from heaven and, and all of that. How would the ancients, I don't know if this is something you could even talk about, but how would the ancients have thought about this Torah being authoritative if it was collected uh, over all these many years and have all these different redactors? Like, if Ezra put it all together and is trying to use it in some authoritative sense, what holds that together? Well, I can only guess, you know, but here's your hypothesis, which is, after all, Greek for guess. (laughs) He, He comes from Babylon, where he's got all these texts, and he's put them together, probably in Babylon, before he returned to Jerusalem. Because when he gets to Jerusalem, he, they stand up and they read this whole combined text. Now, Ezra's a very, very powerful man. He has been appointed to be the governor over, uh, over Judah by the king of the world. I mean, the, 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 the emperor of the Persian Empire. I mean, this man rules everything that is today, North Africa, Israel, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Western India. I mean, he's like, he's the boss and he makes Ezra 
that, and, and according to the text, it says he tells Ezra, you know, you have the authority to teach anybody, and he has the power of life and death. So when he has the, the Levites stand up in Jerusalem, I could picture this in 450 BC, uh, or BCE if you prefer, he, and, uh, and, and they read all this text and they say, and, and this is the, the, the Torah of Moses. I don't picture some guy in the last row saying, oh no, you're, 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 you put that together yourself. That's, that's, that's two different, one of those was by my great grandfather and the other one was by <laughs> my friend's great grandfather. You don't dare open your mouth and say that. I mean, it says specifically that Ezra told the people that he was against all the intermarriages that were going on between the Jews and the local uh, women of the region. And uh, so he orders all the, 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 the men to give up their wives and children and send them away. And they do it. Mm-hmm. Is, this a re- is this just a story or did this really happen? And, and he's worried that people are lending money on interest and then and then foreclosing on people and they're, and they're all losing. So, so he saves the economy, he says, by, by making all, he says, all debts are forgiven. If anybody owes anybody money, you don't have to pay it back. And they all accept that. I mean, do you see that working today? <laughs> mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. any of that, if one, 10% of that is true, I mean, this was a very powerful man and he was declaring this, the Torah and every story they heard read, they had heard before. Maybe they hadn't heard them all together before, but they, they didn't think he was making up Adam and Eve or Moses or Abraham. They, they'd all heard all of that. Yeah. So uh, it was believable and there was enough authority there that you didn't mess with it. Right. There was enough almost political or external authority that made it viable. Yeah. 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 Forced upon them, so to the speak. The Jews perhaps. have to thank the Iranians, which is an ironic development. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Let's talk about something that, again, I'm sort of channeling here my students who I, I make them read out loud portions of Torah in, in the Torah class that I teach, parts that will make them ask questions like, wait a minute, what's happening here? And one of the, one of the big areas is the whole flow of the story and how it just seems very choppy in places. Right, so things seem to be sort of taped together, maybe uncomfortably. Do you have any of those stories that just come to your mind immediately, sort of in a teaching moment? Hmm. Well, every now and then, there's the story where Jacob wrestles with God or an angel or whatever it is in Genesis 32. It's coming in the middle of this whole story about Jacob going back home. He's going to see his brother Esau. He doesn't know how it's going to be. The last time he saw Esau, Esau was going to kill him, and now he's coming back. He's He's got two wives, two concubines, 12 sons, a daughter, wealth, and, and he doesn't know what's going to happen, and he's left alone in the wilderness for the night, and suddenly it says a man came and wrestled with him, and then everybody, you know, you know the story, it turns out that that man was not your average, was not, for, was not normal people, and, 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 they, uh, <laughs> and, 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 this, and he get, gives him the name Israel as a result, and so it's a very important story, but it may be the kind of thing you're talking about, it comes out, you know, like, well, why are we hearing about that suddenly? That that wasn't in this. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, in modern novels, that happens too. In modern history writing, that happens too. Sometimes you you just, uh, you're making yeah. a book that reminds you of something else. Right, mm-hmm. right. I just think that, say that my digressions are better than my lectures, you know, because yeah. I'm talking. <laughs> so and I'm, oh, that reminds me. The Bible's like that too, by the way. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um. I guess, you know, one, because um, you've done some work in Exodus, that one example that comes up, which I cannot really, it, it's too much math to sort of figure this stuff out. It's really hard to keep track of Moses 
once you get to like chapter 20 or, or you know, when he arrives on Mount Sinai, uh, really in chapter 19 already, it's hard to keep track of him. Like, where is he? Is it what, He's up the mountain, he's down the mountain. And uh, can you solve that for me here on this podcast? Because this drives me crazy. I've tried to actually plot it. And at one point, I just, I have Moses getting the Ten Commandments on the ground down here someplace. He's not even up on a mountain. Um, so, how, how does that, I mean, is this something that we can explain through different traditions, different sources? I don't think this particular problem is primarily a problem of different authors, though the different sections and different authors does figure into it and makes it, you can call it either more complicated or richer. But I know that Moses goes up the mountain because God says, come up. And Moses goes up to the mountain and God's first words to him in Hebrew rage, which is go down. And you go, wait a minute. Come on up. Okay, what do you want me to do? Go down. And, 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 he, and he sends Moses shuttling, you know, between the top of the mountain and back with the people. It's just one of these things that's sort of hard to explain, I guess. Just, I mean, it's just, it's, I don't know, if I'm writing a story, I'm going to try to make a little more sense than that sometimes. But um, maybe if there are different hands involved in a story like that, it might make, it might at least explain it a little bit. Which I think is, you know, for me, one of the powerful things about a a source explanation for the Pentateuch, by the way, we haven't even gotten into the sources yet, have we? Um, but this, a source explanation of the Pentateuch is that it does try to explain the text that we see in front of us and why we have things like different vocabulary, different terminology, um, all these converging pieces of evidence that come together. And it may not give the final answer about who did it or maybe exactly when, but we know that's a, those are really good questions to ask of this text. Yeah. And look, there really are serious contradictions and problems because it's the different authors together. I was trying to take a quick look at Exodus 19 while, while, while you were talking, which was, okay. I'm sorry, but I, but I, I, mean, I can't just spot the exact lines that I emphasize now. So, yeah, it's partly, yeah, there's different perspectives, different authors, and well, let, can we can we dive into that, Pete? You mentioned it. We haven't talked about the the sources, and we've we you know we've done an episode on on Velhausen and more more the the classical understanding of these sources. But where is where has biblical scholarship come since those days in terms of how it would articulate these different sources? Well, I just think we have a a refined, better understanding of which sources which and when each was written and why. Uh, mm-hmm. that, from, from Wellhausen, which was, what, 1898, to my, who wrote the Bible, that was 1987, so it's about 100 years. Most of what he laid out, he and the people before him, he actually didn't think of it. He, we think of Wellhausen as the father of it because he wrote a successful popular book, which is not easy to do in German, but he was one of the <laughs> real stylists among Bible scholars in German, which is a very difficult language, which all of us American scholars have to learn the hard way. And, um, and he, he wrote very well. And so um, his book was like the equivalent of a bestseller today. And not a, 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 Germans really read serious books more than we Americans do. And, and um, so that, so, it, it, so I'm just want to give credit where it's, there was a lot of people before him, but he was the one who knew he was good at synthesizing and he was good at writing. So that was what we needed then. Mm-hmm. 
And so his name still goes on it, whether it's really all his or not. And uh, we've come a long way since then, but most of the big pieces were laid out. And there's only one, I think, real blunder in it, which is that he thought the priestly text, which is the largest of these different sources that I was talking, I was talking about the descendants of Aaron, the Aaronid priesthood. They produced this one section, which uh, if you, you look at a text, if you look at my copy of the Bible, I, I have them underlined in colors. So it's green. So if I could hold this up to the screen, everybody would see it's a nice green, half of the Torah is green. And, mm -hmm. and uh, should I plug a book that I, I, I have a book called The Bible with Sources Revealed, where they're, they're, these are all printed in different colors, the different authors. Ah, you've got it, yes. <laughs> I've memorized your book. No, I haven't, but I'm fascinated by it. So. Yeah, I don't like to plug books while I'm talking, but yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was there. So he had that dated wrong. He had that very late, like after the Babylonian exile of the Jews, which is to say around the time of, of Ezra or even later. And they just had that wrong, the, almost the whole Torah. The linguistic evidence now is just tremendously powerful, I would say. I'm completely persuaded that all of the main sources of the Torah were written before the Babylonians conquered the Jews, which is to say before 587 BCE. So largely in the 7th century, like late 7th century, or when would, when would you put these sources? The oldest things, like the, the Song of the Sea and the Song of Moses and the Blessing of Moses, Deuteronomy 32 and 33, those are all like 12th, 11th century BCE. And then uh, the oldest prose source, which is the source we call the J source, that, that is the oldest prose writing known on earth. There is nothing east or west before then. People give the Bible credit and say, oh, it started monotheism and it started this. And so, nobody says, look, this was the first prose writing on earth. If you think it's true, then it's the first history writing on earth. If you think it's made up, then it's the first novel on earth. Whatever it is, it's the first one of those. Right, yeah. And, uh, could, uh, Richard, could you explain J, what that means? Yeah. J stands for the, the, this uh, source uh, the, where the, the God is always referred to by name, and God's name in Hebrew is Yahweh, which in English comes out as Jehovah, so they use a J. So I think mm -hmm. we should use a Y, but, you know, we've been using a J for so long, because it was Germans who thought it's of the it. Germans, the Germans, yeah. And they use a J, so okay. It's always the Germans screwing it up. All right, that's good. Yeah. yeah so, um, and that source includes... Um, a lot of the best-known stories of the Bible, it, it, it's got uh, Adam and Eve, you know? It's one of two stories that, that, that tell the, the flood story. It's got the three visitors to Abraham. It's got Joseph being sold into Egypt. It's got part of the Moses story at the beginning. It doesn't have the Exodus, but it has Moses uh, being born in Egypt and moving to Midian and then coming back. And so, so it, has very, it, it has Sinai. It has one version of the Ten Commandments. There are three in the Torah, but it has one of them. And uh, so, it's the oldest of the prose sources. You didn't, you didn't give a date for that. When, when would you date that? I would say the end of the 10th century BCE. Mm. Mm. Nine-something BCE. Mm. And uh, the next source is the, the source that always refers to God as God. That's uh, Elohim, so we call it the E source in English. And, and uh, that's the one that's from... Um, Mushite priests, people who, right or wrong, I think probably right, they traced, they traced their descent from Moses. And that includes stories like uh, uh, Jacob wrestling, I mentioned in Genesis 32. And, and, and it's a lot of the Exodus story, the back and forth between God and Moses, the, the, the burning bush story. And those two get wound around each other. And that's about, I don't know, 
somewhere between one and a hundred years after the J source. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And, and do we have, I mean, um, the J-Source is like the earliest prose that we have in antiquity. There's nothing like it before or, or next to it or anything like that. The E-Source is, if I remember correctly, the, the, has the least amount in it in, in Torah. Is that correct? Or are there, is there another source that's a little bit less than that? I, we always say that, and it's not really true. Okay. As I divide the J and the E source, they're almost exactly the same length. Oh, all right. Well, they're both incomplete, but there's the same amount of both of them. And the reason I think why everybody thinks that there's so much less E than J is because there's something that in Scottish we call Martin Notes Law. Uh, uh, Martin Note, N-O-T-H, was, was this great German scholar uh, in the 1940s. And, and um, his principle was, when in doubt, it's J. Oh, because he read Genesis first, and in the first 20 chapters of Genesis, there's no E yet. There's only J, and, 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 the, and the third source, the priestly source. So it's mostly J. So he made a principle after that. When in doubt, if you see a verse that's a certain type, you, you, you go, when in doubt, it's J. And you go, no. <laughs> it's just because the J source has more about the patriarchs and all that, because that's what that author cared about. But the E source is more about Moses and the wilderness and the Exodus, because that's what that author cared about. But if you if you really separate them and stop following this absurd, and scholars every now and we get like a law, you know, you know notes, yeah. you know, and 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 uh, if we wouldn't do that, they come out to me almost the same length. You know, it's it's always the Germans. I said that before. I mean it. It's like they're always doing something to screw it up for the rest of us, aren't they? I'm, I can say that because actually my parents are German. So yeah. So <laughs> anyway, so so we have J and E, and then we have two others, and maybe just la- lay those out briefly for us. The third source we call the priestly source, and all you have to do is pick any, you know, open the book to any page of the green pages and look at the pre- it's, it's priestly because it's all concerned with priestly concerns with the tabernacle, with the priests, with the with tremendous amount of laws. It's the entire book of Leviticus, which tells you right away what they're about. But it also includes like some beautiful writing too. It includes Genesis chapter one, the, the seven day creation stories by that same person. The, the priestly source is the biggest of them, and and it's um, it gets a bad rap because it has so much law and details and genealogies and cubits and and all, all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Most people say, well, it's not as good writing as the other two, but it is. Where where he tells stories, he's, he's as good a writer as the others are, uh, and it's amazing that this early in human prose writing. We got so many who were really good at it. Mm-hmm. Or else maybe there were a hundred living nearby who were terrible at it, and that's why we theirs haven't survived and these have. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> and then the fourth source is, is easy. It's the book of Deuteronomy, which is from several different people at different times, but they're all on a certain wavelength, let's say. People call it a certain school, but I don't like using the word schools for the, these guys. But a, a group of writers who were another priesthood, they were in fact another group of that Mushite descended from Moses' priesthood. And, and their writing is just so obvious that even in, in English translation, you can see how different the writing of Deuteronomy looks from the rest 
mm-hmm. comparing it to Genesis. And first of all, it's, in, it, it's a lot of it is in first person with Moses giving laws, when the rest is in third person. So there's that. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of recurring phrases and things that are just typical of Deuteronomy. And with all your heart and with all your soul, that, that's only in Deuteronomy. It doesn't say it in the other books and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So that's the fourth. So when scholars talk about the hypothesis, they, they, they refer to J, E, P, and D, the four main ones. But if you do that, you're leaving out like the Song of the Sea and the Song of Moses, you know, a bunch of other things that are in there. Some of those very old parts, right? I mean, some of those very old parts that are earlier than J. So the 12th century stuff, you can't really... Those aren't part of the typical source scheme, right? Well, because they're, they're, they're single-chapter poems. Remember, those are only poetry, because the, the, first, the first writing is J, which is prose. Mm-hmm. I ask my students all the time, which came first, prose or poetry? Uh, the, which did humans write first, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know what, you got, what, what most people, if you try it on your audience, what most people would answer. I would have said prose, and I would have been wrong, because mm-hmm. humans wrote poetry for a couple thousand years before right. they wrote prose. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, Gilgamesh is, a, is poetry. It's a thousand years older than anything in the, in the Bible. And uh, I don't know why that is. It may be because uh, poetry, and especially put to music, is much easier to memorize. Mm-hmm. They couldn't write okay. much. So well, then why why write prose at all? I mean, these are speculative questions. We can't answer them definitively, but it's it raises in my mind an interesting question. Why not just go with the flow and keep writing these poetic texts of of you know why why not make the Adam and Eve story poetry? Why make it prose? All right. So the first answer is the word scholars never want to say. We don't know. You know yeah. so say I don't know. Scholars always say we don't. We don't know. <laughs> Graciously share the ignorance with our colleagues. You know? It's all about ego. I get it. That's fine. <laughs> I'll just a bit. Uh, uh, another guy and I have been uh, working uh, on a television series based on Who Wrote the Bible. It would be a five-season series. I have no idea if it's going to happen or not. So we're, I'm just talking through, through my hat now here. But we, but uh, there is planned such a thing. But it wouldn't be just taking the book and making a documentary series out of it. It would be dra- a drama, and the whole first year, the first season would be just Jay, and it would be the author of Jay composing it. So if this is the first person who ever wrote prose, when we were working on the pilot for the show, we, we had to have this person say why they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And the person whom we made a woman, which I think is really probably true, is, is, is talking to somebody, and, and, and he says, uh, so, but wait, you're not, you're not, it doesn't have any music. You know what? What do, you, she, what do you call this? And she says, talking. <laughs> and so she's writing it the way she talks. And I, I'm stunned, but for the first 3,000 years of human history, it didn't occur to anybody to do that. Or if they did do it, nobody liked it because they said, it doesn't have a beat, you know? Yeah, right. So, um, it could be. And, oh, and then he asked her, so why are you doing this? It was your question. He said, so, so why are you doing it that way? And she said, I, I can't sing. I'm tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was generally incompetence. Uh, before we <laughs> before we wrap up, I did want to because when we talk about sources, we I know I know this episode is really focused on the Pentateuch, but it just leaves a question that I would guess our listeners are wondering too: is how do these sources map onto or relate to the rest of 
the Tanakh or the rest of, of the Hebrew scriptures in terms of, do we see sources? Or are there categories of other sources that apply primarily to later texts outside of the Pentateuch? It just, you know, we're, we have a lot of very concentrated thinking on it when it comes to the first five books, but how does that relate to the rest of the, the Old Testament? Oh, it, it, the, once you start this and start getting clear on it, the process never ends. You can look at some later books of the Bible that are aware of the sources or they're aware of some, but not others. So the prophet Hosea quotes things that are in J and E, word for word, but nothing from the, the priestly source. It wasn't written yet, but the other two were. Or um, Jeremiah is quoting Deuteronomy all over the place, but only once or twice questionably quotes, quotes the priestly stuff. Hmm. Ezekiel quotes the priestly stuff all over the place, but he doesn't quote Deuteronomy much, which makes sense because Jeremiah is a Mushite priest. He's one of those guys. And Ezekiel was an Aaronid priest. So it's like those guys. And uh, I mean, you can keep going on. There are Psalms that obviously refer to one or another. So it has a major impact on the whole literature of the Bible because a lot of this is being written and developed at times when all of it wasn't put together yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's amazing, really. Yeah, and so it is a bit naive to. I, I, that's a hard word. I don't. I don't mean that in a negative sense. I'm naive about a whole bunch of stuff in my life, but it is naive, I guess, then to think of the the the, the Hebrew scriptures. Let's leave it to that as sort of the solid text that's created and it all coheres and makes sense together. There are tensions and there are things that are difficult to explain. In in a sense of like you know why would a writer do something like this, but you begin to be able to have a conversation about those things when you look at things like the existence of sources and things developed over time, and it actually helps explain some things in in the Bible, which is I think what a lot of people want. They at least well not everybody wants that. Not everybody wants it explained, but those that do, those that have had the curiosity peaked, there are theories out there that have helped us understand something of the character of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Uh, to me, the big thing is that it connects it all to history. You can see it coming out of the real world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the other thing is, I, I want to give credit to, you, to, to the, the editor we call the redactor, probably because the letter E had been used already, so we couldn't use editors. So yeah. <laughs> that, that, the final redactor, there were a few stages of it, but the final guy who put the Torah together was a genius. His contribution is no smaller than, than the author's. Uh, he put it together well enough that even though we're all sitting here, we're talking about the scenes that we can see and the differences and all, but it worked for everybody for a couple thousand years, and it still does. When I read my Bible, sometimes I do it conscious of, of the different sources and sometimes not. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's great both ways. Yeah, I appreciate that recognition because I think – it's something, again, in, in my religious tradition, if it was ever even acknowledged, it was almost seen as a mistake or something to hide. And I appreciate you you talking about it as a valuable contribution to what we have. And I think that's, you know, he, that that person rightly deserves a, a place to, to be talked about and to be honored in this process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's humbling. It really is. And I'm not known for being humble. <laughs> Well, I know I wouldn't want to put it together. So, um, well, anyway, listen, Richard, this is where we are coming to the close here. And if people want to engage you more, we know you have a few books out. And we're going to talk about those a bit later. But 
Do you can people access you online? Do you do that sort of thing, or are you working on any other projects right now? I do have a uh, a website, but I actually don't have like a, a blog a section where people can chat and ask me. But they can at least find out more about you. Yeah, I'll tell okay. you what I'd, I'd like to recommend of mine is I'm doing now a series of lectures called Return to Torah, and it's every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern time for an hour. And I pick a different topic each week. There's no order or organization whatsoever. And um, we've done, I was only going to do about four or five and see if it worked wrong. Now we've done 32 or 33. Okay. <laughs> if you just, you know, go uh, an online search for my name and return to Torah, it would come right up. And, and we save them all. At, so you don't have to watch it at Monday. If you're watching it Monday at one o'clock, then it's live. Yeah. But uh, if you don't care about that, we save them so you can watch them all whenever you feel like it. And it's free. And it, it's I've enjoyed doing it so much that, that I really may not write books anymore. I'm thinking I'll just do this from now on. People don't read anyway, so that's okay. They, but they like to listen and watch. So That's great. So they can just Google that and, and find it. Yeah. Okay. When I was a kid, I used to watch Bishop Sheen on television. I don't know. Uh, Pete, you rec- remember. I don't know about you, Jared. You're a little younger. But we used to watch on, on, I think it was Wednesday nights on CBS, right before Milton Berle, you would see Bishop Sheen. And he looked so beautiful in this magnificent outfit of black and red and a cape and a silver chain with a cross. And, and he was this fabulous lecturer. And he would give a talk on each subject each week. And I'm feeling like, I, I tell people, yeah, I'm trying to be the Jewish Bishop Sheen. Okay. <laughs> I also have well, Alan Watts lectures on Eastern religion for many years. So I said, not, I got well, Alan, what Alan Watts was doing for Buddhism and Bishop Sheen was doing for Catholicism. I'm trying to do for the Torah, for the Bible, which could be Jews and Christians. Well, I'm glad you have goals. That's wonderful to hear. So <laughs> I, I admit. And they're both better than I am, I'll admit. Well, listen, Richard, we, we do appreciate you being on. It was wonderful. And uh, thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. It was great. It was fun. Thanks very much. Wonderful. See ya. All right, everyone. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We also want to give a shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we're able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Casey Hatcher, Peter E. Watts, Mike Cook, Kara Mosley, Patty Brown, Steve Sutton, Dave Oakley, Brenda Elser, Cheryl Kopeck, and Clyde Howell. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer, Megan Kamick, audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt, creative director, Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard, Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spate, and web developer, Nick Striegel. Thanks for listening. But we're going to talk today about who wrote the Bible. And we're talking with a professor, uh, professor, Prof- professor, <laughs> professor of Jewish studies. Right there,